1: This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. Every night on the Sirius XM show, uh, for most of the last year, we've played You Two with the Soweto Gospel Choir, Where the Streets Have No Name. That's <clears throat> been a tribute to our friend Midwin Charles, who left us one year ago today. It's hard to believe it's been one year since Midwin had to leave the building, and I've missed her every day. And she was always a regular on Wednesday. She always came in the ten o'clock hour on the serious x m show in between Bob Seska and Keith Price. She was class and beauty and brilliance personified with a great passion for justice and uh she loved you too, and it's not very hip to love you too uh so Midwin and I always had a good time talking about you too and geeking out, and I would play rarities for her and uh She was someone that I got to know in the green rooms, became friends with, and uh, it's really an honor to have had her on our airwaves. Another person I got to know in the green rooms of CNN and MSNBC over the years was Eric Bollard. Now, um, I want to begin by saying, uh, (laughs) today I began my day testing positive for COVID-19, which I wasn't counting on. It turns out I'm in good company. Merrick Garland has COVID. Um, So does uh, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo. Congressman Adam Schiff, who's a friend of this show, has it. Uh, Joaquin Castro has also tested positive for COVID. They were all at the Gridiron dinner. That big white tie media shindig on Saturday in D.C. And um, best wishes to all of them and everyone who's got it. Matthew Broderick, who I used to be told I look like, he's on Broadway now uh, with his wife, S.J., doing Neil Simon's Plaza Suite. Uh Matthew has tested positive. Um I've interviewed him for, for T V. He's never done the show, but he's he's a lovely guy. I wish him a, 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 a safe recovery. And uh and I wish a, a good time to all the people who are going to see Sarah Jessica Parker with her husband's understudy on Broadway. Um BA two's not messing around, folks. It's out there. Um And uh, I feel lousy, but uh, I began the day thinking, maybe, maybe I should take the day off. Maybe because of this, and I feel like I've been hit by a truck. Maybe tonight's not the night to do a live show. And uh, I spent the day thinking I would do that. And then we got the news about Eric Bollard, a man who began his career writing for Billboard and Rolling Stone, whose media criticism just scorched through Salon and the Daily Coast. Who was managing editor of Media Matters for America for years and, of course, has been running Press Run since 2020, one of the finest places you can go to get your journalism? And Eric has died. He was a ferocious critic of right wing lies, which the mainstream media calls misinformation. He took on hypocrisy and he has died in New Jersey riding his bike. He was struck by a train on his bicycle in Montclair, New Jersey. His wife confirmed this earlier. He was 57. Although our good friend Charlie Pierce at Esquire said he was 57, but his spirit was decades younger and his wisdom was decades older. And that's just the way that was too. A lot of y'all got to know Eric over the years on TV and on radio. I think the first time I ever interviewed him was on the Stephanie Miller show when I was guest hosting way back in the day. And I was blessed to have him as a guest on my TV show and on my podcast. And if you listen to this show over the years, you know Eric very well. He's done this show. It's got to be over 50 times. He was fearless. He never shied away from critiquing the biases in mainstream press and how much the biases in mainstream press impact our politics. Um, His uh, Salon put out a tweet saying, We are devastated by the loss of esteemed journalist and former Salon senior writer Eric Bollard. Our condolences to Eric's family and friends during this difficult time. His passing is a huge loss to media criticism and progressive journalism. You know, gaslighting is a term that gets thrown around a lot. And we've kind of sort of begun to think gaslighting is the same as lying. It's not. I recommend the movie with Charles Boyer. Gaslighting is when people try to make you doubt your senses, when people try to make you wonder if you're the one who's crazy and they're all sane. And I think that was Eric's greatest gift was any time you were wondering, oh, my God, am I am I wrong about everything? Could I possibly just be really deceived? And these Trump people might be just common sense, right? Right. <laughs> Eric could cut through the bullshit and the lies and the disinformation, the double talk and jive and the rank fuckery of fascists. And he could do it elegantly with prose and passion. He was someone who blew up gaslighting. He was born in Utica, New York. He spent a bit of his childhood in Indiana and then his family moved to Connecticut. He got his bachelor's uh, in Middle Eastern studies at uh, UM Amherst. And as I mentioned, uh, one thing I had in common with him, we both sort of started our careers. In the music industry. He at Billboard and Rolling Stone, I was a comedian who was doing D H one nonsense. And he started Press Run because uh, he wanted to create, as he put it, an unfiltered, passionate, and proudly progressive critique of the political press in the age of Trump. And that's what he did. He didn't just make jokes about politicians, he took on how the press shapes our opinions. Sold at O'Brien, who I've worked with a lot and has been on this show, she said a terrible loss. We've lost an awesome human being, handsome, cool, witty dude who kicked ass on our behalf, crazy devotion to facts, context, and good reporting, enemy of BS, fake news. We can't fix this American mess if we don't fix the press. Now, Press Run is a newsletter on Substack. And if you listen to the show again, you've heard me say every time Eric does the show, you've got to subscribe. You've got to begin your day with Press Run. He, he, He did it three times a week, was reader supported, and it was... Very original media commentary, analysis, and reporting. <sighs> he wrote a couple of books, Slap Dogs, How the Press Rolled Over for Bush. I remember interviewing him for that. And Bloggers on the Bus, How the Internet Changed Politics and the Press. John Stewart tweeted, rest in peace, Eric. Both greatly admired his passion and tenacity. Media Matters, which he was the Mac daddy at for years, released a statement saying, uh, we are better for having known and worked with such a thoughtful, fearless, and passionate media critic. It was always a treat when Eric would visit the D.C. office. While he was direct and unsparing on social media, he was equally as warm, inspiring, and helpful to his colleagues. And that's true. He was profoundly kind. I don't know if that always came across on the news. And, if I may say, impeccably neat. I mean, he made me feel good about being a skinny guy who wore fitting suits. I never could pull it off as well as him. He had style to match his passion. And outrage at the bullshit inflicted on American minds because he loved this country and he loved justice and he loved honesty. Uh, Hillary Clinton tweeted, Eric Bollert's death is terrible news. I'm devastated for his family and friends and will miss his critical work to counteract misinformation and media bias. What a loss. A time when we need his principled media criticism more than ever. So, (laughs) I felt like crap all day. Um, Like they all say, when you finally get it, even if you're vaxxed and boosted, it'll feel like a hell of a flu sometimes. Uh, My little son has it as well. He's doing okay, just a cough. But um, I realized that there was no way that I I couldn't come to work tonight. Uh, And um, so I'm honored to be here to to pay tribute to Eric Bollert and his work. And I think the best way I can do that if you'll indulge me and give me a a couple of minutes here is to show you, um, the power of his prose and the power of his passion. Uh, I'd like to read if I could, um, just a bit of his last column he wrote for press run, which came out Monday. This came out the day he died. Uh, and it was about the press and Joe Biden. And look, I don't claim to be a journalist. I've never been a journalist. I admire real journalists. I'm, I'm a comedian. I'm a vulgar vaudevillian who likes to tell jokes about politics. And I'm a broadcaster who came from TV and likes to interview interesting people who are smarter or more moral or funny than me. Eric was more than a journalist. He was a journalist journalist. And um, if you will give me the honor, I would like to share his words with you. Like clockwork. The first Friday of the month brought another blockbuster jobs report. The U.S. economy under President Joe Biden added another 400,000-plus new jobs in March. It was announced last week. Biden is currently on pace during his first two full years in office to oversee the creation of 10 million new jobs and an unemployment rate tumbling all the way down to 3%. That would be an unprecedented accomplishment in U.S. history. Context. In four years in office, Trump lost 3 million jobs the worst record since Herbert Hoover. Yet the press shrugs off the good news, determined to keep Biden pinned down. The reality is that one strong jobs report does not snap the administration out of its current circumstances, Politico stressed Friday afternoon. How about 11 straight strong job reports? Would that do the trick? Because the U.S. economy under Biden has been adding more than 400,000 jobs per month for 11 straight months. The glaring disconnect between reality and And how the press depicts White House accomplishments means a key question lingers. Why is the press rooting against Biden? Is the press either hoping for a Trump return to the White House? Or at least committed to keeping Biden down so the 2024 rematch will be close and entertaining for the press to cover? Is that why the Ginny Thomas insurrection story was politely marched off the stage after just a few days of coverage last week? by the same news outlets that are now in year three of their dogged Hunter Biden reporting. ABC This Week included 19 references to Hunter Biden yesterday. Just look at the relentlessly dour economic coverage. For the press, inflation remains the dominant bad news for Dems' economic story. Even on Friday, the day the stellar jobs report was released, inflation was mentioned on cable news nearly as often as jobs, according to tbis.com. Axios contorted itself by claiming Biden's promise to add millions of new jobs, which he's already accomplished, was being threatened because there aren't enough workers, because so few people are out of work or something. The home run report itself was often depicted as a mixed bag. These were just some of that glass half empty headlines that appeared in the wake of the latest runaway numbers. CNN, America's job market is on fire. Here's why it doesn't feel like it. CNN. Booming job growth is a double-edged sword for Joe Biden. CNN. Why a great jobs report can't save Joe Biden. Washington Post. Unemployment hits pandemic low in March, but uncertainty looms ahead. Washington Post. Biden gets a strong jobs report, but a sour mood still prevails. Totally normal journalism, right? The president announces another blockbuster jobs report, and the press presents it as borderline bad news. Note that the above headlines about the sour mood prevailing despite the great jobs and how uncertainty looms came from the Post, the same outlet that slotted the March jobs report into 87th placed on its website for Friday. That afternoon, readers on the Daily's homepage had to scroll down 87 headlines before they saw the first reference to the great economic news. Among the headlines that ran higher on the Post site that afternoon were, What's the best way to share my old home videos? And the Duke-North Carolina rivalry, by the numbers. On air, CNN also downplayed the jobs report, according to Dean Baker, senior economist for the Center for Economic and Policy Research. Quote, CNN's coverage of the report quickly turned to inflation, he wrote. In its more general coverage of the economy, the jobs report, which tells us about the employment and earning situation for more than 160 million people, was barely a blip. End quote. Sunday's Meet the Press roundtable featured two segments with assembled pundits, one focused on how immigration might be a problem for Democrats in the midterms, the other on how Trump might be a problem for Democrats in the midterms. As usual, Biden's historic economic record was ignored. That's why, according to a recent poll, 37% of Americans think the economy lost jobs over the last year, when it's gained 7 million. Only 28% of people know jobs were up. Virtually all the Beltway coverage today agrees on this central point. When it comes to the economy, Biden's approval rating is taking a hit because Americans are freaked out by inflation. But maybe it's taking a hit because Americans are under the false impression that jobs are disappearing. Voters don't know. What they don't know because the press isn't interested in telling them about record job successes and an economy that's years ahead of where experts thought it would be coming out of a global pandemic. Biden is facing not just one organized opposition in the form of the GOP, but another in the form of the Beltway Press Corps. Last week, they hit Biden with 14 separate questions at press briefing over the supposed gaffe he made expressing his moral outrage over the mass killings Russian President Vladimir Putin has unleashed in Ukraine. So focused on trying to trip up Biden, the press didn't ask a single question about the state of the Ukraine war. And remember all winter how the press treated COVID as the most important crisis Biden faced and hung the pandemic around his neck? Today, the topic has vanished. The press has given the White House no credit for steering the country back to normalcy. And instead has latched onto gas prices as being a defining issue under Biden. The buried COVID coverage represents a telling example of how an issue that the press itself claimed would de- define the Biden administration gets translated into no news when it turns towards positive territory. The Beltway press needs to take its thumb off the Biden scale. Eric Bolert. In Press Run. This was published Monday, the day he was taken from us.
0: CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car, you should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode is brought to you by Philo. Do you love TV? Do you love saving money? Then Philo is your solution. slash P-O-P-P-O-D-S to get 50% off your first month.
1: This week, Pope Francis officially apologized to Indigenous Canadians for the horrific abuse inflicted upon Native children in residential schools. Canada has only begun a reckoning that the U.S. hasn't even considered yet. We we like to believe in a, a warm and nurturing narrative about rescuing children from dangerous homes. It's a narrative that was created in the late 19th century when charitable organizations promoted a kinder way of helping the impoverished children of immigrants. And these efforts at reform often manifested in a belief that the only way to help child poverty was to take children away from their families, which all too often led to children being placed with strangers and forced to work. In 2020, according to the Department of Health and Human Services, uh, over 630,000 children who are disproportionately Black or First Nations, were served by the foster care system. And that doesn't include families that are under supervisory plans or who got surprised knocks on their doors from caseworkers, uh, often caseworkers with cops showing up. To this day, many of the systems in place, ostensibly to help protect Black and Native children, have roots in 19th century cultures of slavery, apartheid, punishing poverty, and, ethnic cleansing. and we don't talk a lot about our modern child welfare system, a $30 billion annual business. Increasingly, states are turning not to kind families looking to raise children in homes, but these private for-profit companies and non-profit works to run their foster care systems. And we really don't talk about how LGBTQ children fare in the foster system. Professor Dorothy Roberts is someone who uh, is among a number of activists who have another name for the child welfare system, Family Policing. We need to talk about its origins, so let's talk about it. Uh, Professor Roberts is an acclaimed scholar of race, gender, and law at the George Weiss University, uh, is, the, is the George Weiss University Professor of Law and Sociology at the University of Pennsylvania. She is a contributor to the 1619 Project and the author of four books, including Killing the Black Body. You may have seen her before in the New York Times, MSNBC, Vice, ABC. The book is Torn Apart, How the Child Welfare System Destroys Black Families and How Abolition Can Build a Safer World. Many believe our child welfare system protects kids from abuse. And many of us have known kind people who've been foster parents. And a lot of agencies and organizations in the child welfare realm have origins in the progressive era. But that doesn't mean the practices are progressive today. It's a pleasure to welcome Professor Roberts.
2: Thank you so much, John, for that wonderful introduction. You really captured what I'm trying to get across in my book, and I
1: appreciate it. Well, most of us want to believe it is a compassionate culture. Uh, we're desperate to believe it, and we're not really sold a very nuanced portion of it. But it, it is true that a lot of these organizations in the child welfare system do have their origin in the, in the progressive era when they formed out of out of real human concerns for child labor and the living conditions in tenement housing, correct? That's
2: true. That's one part of it. But we would have to go further back to look at its origins in slavery and the separation of Black families at the will exactly. of enslavers, you know, to understand why it is that Black families are so easily separated today. We'd have to go after that to the Civil the civil War, after the Civil War, when Black families were finally liberated from slavery, but there was a white supremacist backlash that included not just convict leasing and incarceration that we hear about, but also apprenticeship of Black children back often to the very people who enslaved them. And then, of course, the use of child removal as a weapon of war by the U.S. government against Native tribes during the so-called Indian Wars. And after that, the adoption policy that deliberately took Native children from their homes and put them in white-run institutions and also to be adopted by white families. So we would have to take that history into account. And even during the progressive era, Black children were left out of these caring institutions. And even then, they were based on the idea, as you so rightly said, that the way to deal with poverty is to take children away from their families rather than restructuring our society to yes. end poverty. And so uh, that story is true that there was this reform that progresses, but also others that had very negative views of impoverished people. Uh, that fueled this new way of putting children in foster care but we can't forget the racist and white supremacist origins that were just as influential as the more progressive views
1: that's why i love that your book tells the deeper story and that you actually put child protective care in the larger construct of u.s history because there really is a lineage between black people enduring the forced separation of their families at the auction block to what we've seen today, to what the Pope apologized for in Canada this week Uh, after slavery ended. I know courts would often determine that, uh, black parents were just negligent randomly and order their kids pretty much just to be into indentured servitude, right? Just legal slavery.
2: Exactly. So after, the Civil War ended, there was this move in Southern states to re-enslave Black people uh, through a number of means, but one of them was through the court system, and this is why it's so similar to what happens today. These are judges adjudicating Black parents as neglectful because of the harms of structural racism. These were people who were just emancipated from being enslaved, and of course, there wasn't a real concern for the welfare of these children. It was just uh, guys to be able to put them back to work for their former enslavers or other former enslavers.
1: And at the same time, this is going on in America in the late 1800s, the U.S. military was going after indigenous tribes and using child removal as pretty much a weapon of war. It was a weapon weapon of war.
2: Exactly. It was literally a weapon of war. It was the U.S. military that devised this plan to take Native children from their homes and put them basically in detention centers. You know, they called them boarding schools. Residential schools
1: in Canada. Yeah.
2: Very, very much the same idea and the same kind of treatment where they were stripped of their culture. They the boys had to cut their hair. Uh, they had to dress in Western clothing, and they were also made to work. They they worked. And this was a deliberate way of dispossessing tribes of children in the same way they were dispossessing tribes of land. Uh, It was a military tactic. And that then devolved later and became the adoption policy that went on all the way into the 1970s, an official adoption policy of the US government to take children from their homes and with charges of neglect. Again, this accusation that the parents are neglectful, but this just is a way to excuse removing children from their homes and either keeping them in orphanages or getting them adopted into white
1: homes. Exactly. And and it really, in the case of Indian children, was ethnic cleansing in every sense of the word. And this yes. is really the origin of the child welfare system we've inherited in our century.
2: Yes, yes that's right. So uh, there were tribes that were literally destroyed not just decimated in the sense that they were reduced in numbers, but there were some smaller tribes that were destroyed by this practice because so many children were taken away from their families and their tribal units and their communities. Uh, So, yeah, it it is a way of destroying, and if not completely destroying, a way of so disrupting marginalized communities that, they, it's hard for them to resist oppression. It's a form of oppression, breaking up families, taking children away from their loved ones and putting them in harmful institutions that disrupt their education, disrupt their social relationships, disrupt their health care, uh, that leads to high rates of incarceration. You know, these are really serious threats to the survival or healthy thriving of communities. And it's also a way of blaming these parents for the harms to their children. So it's both at the practical level, right, interfering in relationships, uh, in communities and neighborhoods, but also a way of persuading the broader public that the reason why these children are suffering from disadvantages is because of their parents not because of structural inequality and so it's a deterrent to social change
1: and it's a it's a it's a real toxic myth to this day rather than say well you have these social ills because of poverty the mentality was, no, 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 you have poverty because of your social ills. The The philosophy was that, you know, the best way to address child poverty is to take them away from their families and put them in strangers' homes and send them off to work. What, what were orphan trains, Professor? Can you explain oh. that? I had never heard of orphan trains before.
2: Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. So orphan trains were uh, the idea of a char- charitable organizations during the late 1800s, originally in New York City. And uh, instead of just taking children from impoverished immigrant neighborhoods, taking them and putting them into foster homes, putting thousands of children eventually on trains that they boarded in Eastern cities, primarily New York City. And then they were sent to cities in the West uh, or (laughs) towns in the West. They were mostly sent to rural farms in the Midwest and the Southwest uh, to work for people who signed up to get these children. Uh, There were ads for these children. And interestingly, they would promote it as these were healthy white, most of these were white children from European immigrant families in the then slums of New York and other cities. And they were advertised as healthy workers who, you know, you just had to pay a small fee and you would be able to get one of these children to work on your farm. And they were boarded onto trains and shipped hundreds and hundreds of miles away to work on these farms. And the idea was that this was going to be a healthier way of raising these children than keeping them with their impoverished families. But once again, instead of dealing with the causes of poverty and why their families were living Mm -hmm. in these destitute uh, circumstances, the answer from these charitable organizations was to, put them on trains and send them out west to work.
1: Yeah. I mean, and it was a big business and it shows there's a pretty fine line between saving a child and exploiting a child. Um, yes. it, comes, it keeps coming down to punishing poverty over and over again, like we see today. Uh, l- let me ask you about the financial aspect of all of this because um, I was shocked reading about, you know, the ads for the able-bodied children coming in yes. on the orphan trains. Right. Today, uh, child welfare... Is as you know a multi-billion-dollar industry. Right. Where does that money come from, Professor? Is 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 and and what is privatization done to this system?
2: Okay, yeah. So the that thirty billion dollars is a combination of federal funding. Uh, the federal government sends funds to states and localities to be able to pay for the costs of maintaining children away from their families. That's where most of the money is spent. 10 times as much money is spent on uh, foster care costs and also adoption subsidies, but both maintaining children outside of their families as is spent on services to intact families. So there's the the federal budget and then states and cities also have their own uh, contribution of their funds as well. And if you add it all up, estimates are it comes to about $30 billion a year that's spent on the services, again, mostly uh, removing children and maintaining yeah. them outside of the home. And right. so that's the funding of it. That's the you know big part of what I call the foster industrial complex is the funding of it. Uh, and also the way in which this funding goes mostly toward child removal, not toward supporting children living at home with their yes. families, giving them money right to the caregivers, their family caregivers. Uh, instead, more money is given through this system to uh, substitute caregivers, whether their families and children are in homes or whether they're to institutions. Now you mentioned privatization, yes. increasingly states are turning to private companies. These might be for-profit or nonprofit, but the point is they are private companies that are receiving fees based on contracts with public child welfare departments. And that those fees go to maintaining foster children outside their home to Mm -hmm. finding foster parents, paying uh, foster caretakers or institutions, group homes, residential therapeutic centers, money to care for children. And so, uh, and the, the companies, Take some of that money to to administer their programs and to pay for the staff and yeah, the CEO of the company of people, and all A lot of, that of, jobs, are, lot
1: of, lot of jobs. A lot here. of jobs here.
2: Jobs. There's so many people. The caseworkers make money. The supervisors. The administrators in child welfare departments the, the public administrators but then also the CEOs of these companies and all the staff that they hire the foster caretakers the staff of institutions you know all of these people are making money off of taking children from their homes and maintaining them outside of the home so it's a huge amount and if i could mention one other dimension of it Please. is the way in which in most states, child welfare departments take the benefits uh, through social security that children would get for disability or survivor benefits if their parents are deceased. And that those benefits that are owed to the children, these child welfare departments become the legal financial representatives of the children. And they simply take the money for themselves, yeah. not you know, they say it's in to reimburse themselves for the costs of maintaining these children in foster care, but it's not as if they are actually uh, separating the funds for each child and That's giving it. it back to the child. It just goes into the pot of you know the coffers of the, the payoff of the budget, and so you have children who should have been getting hundreds or thousands of dollars over the course of the time they're in foster care. And instead they get none of it directly. Uh, Not to mention that the state has taken these children away from their families. And they have an obligation then to take care of the children. They shouldn't be able to claim, well, we want to be reimbursed for taking care of you after you've taken them by force away from their families. They have an obligation to take care of these children. They have funding to take care of the children. So this is just a way, a strategy to exploit as you mentioned the thin line between protection and exploitation to exploit these children and again foster care de- um well child welfare departments enter into big contracts sometimes multi-million dollar contracts with companies that are specializing in how to find children who are owed benefits and then, uh, there, they strategize how to increase the number of those children in foster care, putting them into foster care so that the state can get their benefits.
1: Exactly. Uh, exactly. Yeah. And 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 again, I I I want to I want to stress. I have no doubt there are many compassionate individuals working in this system who really care about children. But the point is, this system is the descendant of these insidious systems in the 1800s. And it's based on this notion of of how to address children's needs, which is honorable and and deeply moral, but it's rather than spending the money to help the material needs or the mental health needs of these families in poverty, they're not spending the money to help the families in poverty, they're spending the money to maintain the system.
2: Exactly. So one point I think your listeners should... Uh, be aware of is that the vast majority of children removed from their homes and put in foster care are there because their parents were alleged to have neglected them, Uh, not because they were accused of physical or sexual abuse. It's only 16 or 17% of the children in foster care are there because of sexual or physical abuse. All the rest are there for neglect. And most states, well, really every state defines neglect in a way that gets confused with poverty. It's basically that the parents aren't providing the material needs of the children, and that's because they can't afford it. They can't yep. afford housing. They can't yep. afford medical care. They can't afford uh, to have a tutor for the child who, you know, might have learning needs. Learning disabilities. Uh, yeah. They can't afford, afford child care, so maybe they have to leave the children at home in order to get a job, or to work, or to uh, do an interview, or or just daily life. You know, they're all of these are material needs. I think housing is such a good example of this because estimates show, uh, several studies have shown that about a third of children in foster care now Could safely return home if they had adequate housing. Yes. But they don't. Right. So, but do child protective services provide adequate housing? No. What they do is they take children away if they find a family in dilapidated housing or insecure housing or in a homeless shelter. They take the children away, put them in foster care, and then tell the parents they have to find housing if they want to get their children back. So they don't provide the housing. So, uh, this is is absolutely a way of punishing poverty and dealing with it in in a with an approach that doesn't address the poverty. It, it it blames the parents as if they're some kind of pathological monsters who don't want to take care of their children. That's not the reason why. And so. That's why you're making a good point, I think, that many people get involved in this system as caseworkers or as foster caretakers because they have a concern for children, but they can't uh, uh, achieve their objectives because they're doing it in a system that is designed to harm children. It's designed to punish poverty. It's not designed to keep children safe and really support their welfare. And so, know, we, we need a completely different approach to how to do that so that these well-meaning people can actually participate in creating ways that exactly. really would keep children safe.
1: Exactly. I do want to bend over backwards a bit to say that there are good people within the system, but the yes, parallels, <laughs> punishing poverty with more poverty, punishing poverty with taking children away, and, and let's be honest, another common parallel to the late 1800s, um, exploiting racist myths about Black or Indian families to keep the system rolling along.
2: Right, why is it that today in 2022, it is still the case that Black and Indigenous families or Native families are still the most likely to be separated? Why is that? It's not just a coincidence that it was in the late 1800s, it was a deliberate attack on these people. And now today it just happens that they're the ones uh, they're yeah. far more likely. And uh, Black children are, uh, fifth, it, the, the one recent study found that 53% of Black children in America will experience a child welfare investigation at some point in their childhood before they turn 18. And one in 10 will be removed from That's their right. home by the time they turn 18. These are astronomical numbers. I mean, just think about it. Of Over course. half of black children experience a child welfare investigation. that either you
1: know <laughs> it's, it's, either it's, something it's, is it's wrong with our society.
2: it really is. It's really mind-boggling and it cannot be that the best way to address the needs of half of black children is to investigate and accuse their parents. you know there has to be a more structural, Way of addressing the reasons why black children are in need.
1: Thirty and, billion a year would keep a lot of <laughs> families together. A lot of families in poverty could stay together with thirty billion a year and be uh, lifted absolutely. out of poverty. Yeah.
2: Absolutely, and you know we, it should be even more than that, but not devoted to separating families, but devoting to meet the needs of families. We already know this is very well documented and we can even see it from our experiences during the pandemic that the best way to reduce child poverty and to improve the welfare of children in poverty is to simply give cash benefits income no strings attached to their primary caretakers or the Cherokee
1: Nation and the Cherokee Nation in North Carolina has proven that by dividing yeah. their casino revenues evenly right. among the tribe and every member gets $11,000 a year. And all right. these social ills of suicide and alcoholism and incarceration right. have gone away with the payments. Exactly. exactly.
2: Um, That's one of many studies that have shown that. And we can see even now, just in the last couple of years with the. Uh, child tax credits and checks actually going out to families, that we can see an improvement in welfare. And by the way, in New York City, during the lockdown, where child protective services basically shut down, except for in cases of child uh, fatalities, the fatality rate went down during this period. That's right. And there was no evidence of increase in child abuse. And why? Because families were getting income supplements during the time and also because there were networks of community-based mutual aid that sprang into action to actually provide groceries you know, exactly, to people, exactly. to provide diapers for exactly. babies, to provide childcare. So we know this, we know what would be better. And yet most yes. Americans, partly because they don't know what's going on in this system, but or, or because of beliefs they have that poor parents don't know how to take care of their children, especially exactly. if they're black and indigenous. You know, These are stereotypes that fuel this system. And, uh, and so what we know would help children isn't happening. And all I'm calling for in my book, Torn Apart, is let's end this brutal way of addressing children's needs that traumatize them and throw them into exactly. danger. Uh, And instead turn to what we already know would work far better to protect them and keep them safe and improve their welfare.
1: That's why I love the book because it is so much outrage and yet so much hope and so many good ideas. And before I let you go, I got to cover one more aspect we haven't even discussed yet, which is um, despite all the facts and statistics we have, there's no way to measure the harm of separation of families uh, yeah. and, and there's no way to measure the harm the legal system can do you know better than me how many kids report that when they age out of foster right. care, whether it's eighteen yeah. or, or twenty-one, it's right. different for every state. I know right. Um, right. many of these agencies just leave them on their own, maybe with Absolutely. maybe with a few dollars in their pocket, uh, you know, maybe dropped off at a shelter. But right. they are they are when the system's done with them, the system spits them out, whether they're ready or not. And what happens then, Professor?
2: Well, what happens then is the disproportionate numbers at high rates become homeless. Uh, they end up incarcerated. Uh, mm-hmm. They end up uh, without a steady income, and they end up with mental health disorders uh, as a result of the trauma of not only spending time in foster care. And if you enter foster care, for example, as a black teenager, you, you there is a high probability that you will at some point spend time in one of these institutions, and those are very traumatic. I give a few cases in the book of children being killed in these institutions by staff or being severely injured, sexual violence that goes on as well, and so many of these children have already been traumatized, and if they've aged out, it's probably... Uh, likely that their parental the the rights of their parents have been terminated, which means they have no legal relationship to uh, any to adults who exactly. could give them support and guidance. And as you said, many are just dropped off at a Y or at a homeless shelter with a little bit of money in their pockets, which makes it all the more galling that some of them would have had thousands of dollars in survivor benefits or disability benefits if the state didn't take it away from them. And now they're left to fend for themselves. I mean, even a child in a nurturing home would find it difficult at age 18 or 21 to fend for themselves. They may be high school dropouts. Um, they're, they're very low rates of college uh, right. attendance by children who age out of foster care. And so now I have to say, to be fair, some states and the federal government have passed laws that provide now for some kind of training at the, you know, right when you're about to age out of foster care, like it's kind of like life skills training. There are some that are providing possible scholarships for college. But these are all again with strings attached if these children or young adults don't meet the requirements, you know, they have to meet with caseworkers, they have to, their grades have to be a certain level and if they fail to meet the requirements they can be kicked out right. uh there's a, you know these there are now these new proceedings for children who have aged out of foster care to see whether they should be able to get these benefits and not the way a parent you know <laughs> would support a child right but uh through a court ordered process that is can be very intimidating and also very cruel exactly and so yeah. uh, you know what why. The thing about this that, that really angers me is that why wait now until this young person is about to age out and now say, okay, we'll give you some benefits. why Again, why wasn't the family offered support so that the child didn't have to age out of foster care and many of these children return home And I cite a study that shows that children who return home after aging out do better because they've got a family to support them. But many children can't return home because their homes have been disrupted. And and maybe their parents at this point aren't able to take care of them and help because they've been so disrupted by this system. And so uh, it's... You know, we, yes, we can point to cases where examples where children have been nurtured by kind. Yes. and, and God caring. bless them. Yes. Yes. Foster caregivers. But that shouldn't blind us to the All the children who are harmed, all the families that are harmed, and also why can't that care be given to children outside of this punitive system? No, you know, I nor anyone else who uh, is an abolitionist in this field, in this struggle, would say, We don't care about these children, just let them fend for themselves. We're saying the opposite. Yes, we want the kind of care that some children do get in caring foster homes, but not through a disruptive system. Provide that care for everybody in community-based, truly supportive, I just love you
1: i just i love you i love you i love i love what your book and i love what you've done and and it, it's it, I, it, one of the greatest tragedies is it's the fear of everything you've discussed that keeps so many parents from seeking the help that they yes. need uh professor dorothy roberts the book is torn apart how the child welfare system destroys black families and how abolition can build a safer world you are doing the lord's work how can our listeners follow you and keep up with what you're doing
2: thank you well i'm on twitter uh, Dorothy E. Roberts, so at Dorothy E. Roberts on Twitter. Uh, I have uh, a website that's also Dorothy E. Roberts. Dot what would it be. Dot org, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's right. And if you Google me, Dorothy Roberts, I'm at University of Pennsylvania. Um, I have web pages both in the sociology department and in the Africana studies department and the law school. So those are all ways you can
1: find me. Such a pleasure. I needed this conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back.
3: Okay. Picture this. It's Friday afternoon. When a thought hits you, I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Um, Laura, in L.A.,
1: you've been on a hold forever, and I thank you. Hi. Laura. Hi.
0: Hi. I, wanted to, I had two things about being a foster parent. Please. And a one about Eric Bowler. Please. Um, all right. Well, um, I started getting the press run, and um, I would email Eric all good stories. Well, on PBS NewsHour, Judy Woodruff would say this good stuff about Biden. And so I sent, like, four different emails, Margaret Brennan or Judy Woodruff. It was always the women, but on these You know, nonprofit uh, news organizations, well, Margaret Brennan, um, CBS, uh, but PBS NewsHour mostly was saying good factual things about the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. So then by the fifth email, Eric replied back to me and gave me four sentences February 24th of this year. He goes, I will always remember you, Laura. You're trying to put a positive on near heart attack days I have with corporate media. Wow. Keep it wow. up. And so that's wow. what I have from Eric.
1: That's a blessing.
0: Here <laughs> I'm thinking, you know, I'm just sending an email to Nowheresville. Um, you
1: wanna you might want to try to share that story with uh with Stephanie Miller and with Eric's family if you if you can if you can. That's a really lovely story. Thank you.
0: Well also Hillary Clinton put out a tweet today about Yeah I read head, that earlier. So I yeah. So I didn't know that um, he was that far. And are we allowed to hate trains? Because um, Joe Biden loves trains.
1: <laughs> I love trains. Yeah, you can, you can, uh, we don't know what happened. I don't know how this the Jersey happened.
0: The train, yeah, some train that he was yeah. riding his
1: bike by. Yeah, I don't understand. So, I, I'm a bicyclist. I, I don't know how it happened. It's just, uh, it's just horrible on every level. And it's such a loss. And it's, you know, hopefully will motivate all of us had to. had earbuds
0: on. And yeah, that's, hear it, that's you know, what Bob thought so it might have happened. Yeah. Things.
1: Yeah. Well, thank you for your kind words. I really appreciate it.
0: But just to let you know, as a, uh, my husband and I fostered four different kids. Wow. And uh, one, we got the mother back. She was on drugs and mm-hmm. we worked to help rehabilitate her. Amazing. And um, this Easter, that's the thing that uh, your guest brought up was there's nowhere to go once they're out of the system. Yep. And so this I'm a widow now. My husband was in the Air Force and was killed in Afghanistan. And oh, um, um, so at Easter, I have a bunch of kids, and they have kids, so they're all coming to visit me at Easter, and uh, I always welcome everyone, and um, because th- that's what you have to think of. If you want to yeah. IVF kids, why not foster or adopt, because where do you think these kids go during the holidays uh, once yep. they're out of the system? They don't yep. have anybody. Yeah, so and we went through we happens. went through
1: all the problems on the system. One thing that can help the system uh, until it, there's proper reform is you know good people doing it. And uh, I'd love to see some of these Mentors. anti-abortion rights people. I would love to see some of these anti-abortion rights people put their money where their mouth is and adopt more kids too. Thank you so much for oh, the call, I Laura. Uh,
0: that's that's one way. When all these anti-abortion people, I say, how many kids have you adopted or fostered? And that's why I sent them up. That's all. Thank you,
1: thank <laughs> you, Laura.